Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Good, good. I had some um, constructive feedback for the person who, who wrote Fuck Herzog and Graffiti on the Stranger Building, if you're open to that. <laughs> what was that? Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about it because this person was expressing sentiments I myself feel and often vocalize. Understandably. But I think they missed an opportunity. Absolutely. You're, you're an abusive uh, coworker. Everyone knows it. Stories are coming out, trickling out by the day. Um, so they, they wrote fuck Herzog or technically fuck Herzo. There's a real missed opportunity there for something a little bit more subtle and passive aggressive. So, so imagine you're looking across like a, a charred Seattle Rogo, Robocop-esque landscape of graffiti. And imagine if instead of fuck Herzog, it was like Black Lives Matter, De- uh, justice for George Floyd, abolish the police. I met Katie at a party once and her shoes were pretty tacky. I think that would be a powerful statement. In a sense, doesn't that cut deeper than fuck Katie Herzo? I mean, it also, it, it does, it hurts. And it, I mean, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, you know, and, and when someone's telling you something that's the truth, it, you know, it does cut deeper. Yeah. So yeah, you could do, it could be about your shoes. It could be. It could be about my teeth, my hair. I have fucking horrible hair, especially now. I was just thinking yesterday that if it was possible, I might just like shave my golden doodle and make his, uh, make his hair into a little wig for myself. I, this, in terms of stuff for like stretch goals, a photo of you wearing your golden doodles hair is great and not weird at all. Not weird at all. I don't, I actually don't, maybe I've been in quarantine for too long, but maybe, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't actually don't find that, that strange. She has really nice hair. For graffiti, or maybe like, you could graffiti, I saw Katie the other day and she looked dot dot dot, fine. <laughs> Just okay. I did, there was a, there were some stickers um, posted around Seattle that said like, uh, you know, Katie Herzog is a transphobe jordan peterson apologist which was the really embarrassing one um anti-left or something like that and at one point someone had gone through and like like written over them i I can't remember what they were it was like um katie herzog is always cold (laughs) uh, which is true katie herzog has a small bladder also true so it must have been somebody who knows me really well it's probably my wife to be honest with you so last week we're talking about someone graffitied fuck katie herzog on the stranger building and it, the G sort of got cut off. So it looked like fuck Katie hurt. So I really think this podcast needs sort of a third character. Cause you and I are not interesting people. No. It, and we can't keep this up for too long. We're no. going to run out of, of, of uh, any amount of charm that we have pretty soon. We need sort of a third off mic presence, like a character with some lore behind them. So if you're a listener and you want to build up the backstory of Katie Hertzo, who is a intern at the stranger with horribly transphobic and bigoted views, who people often confuse with Katie Herzog, who, as we all know, has all the right views. That would be great. And if you send us good stuff, well, maybe we'll read it on the podcast, but I, I just, Jesse and Katie is not enough. We are, Thin cardboard cutouts. We are desiccated husks of people. Katie Herzo could have a fascinating backstory. I think what you're what you're talking about here is technically blocked and reported fanfic, oh which I God. love. I think um, I think it's time. We've been doing the podcast for over over like two months now. I think it's time for some fanfic. Can you imagine if someone shipped Katie Herzog and Katie Herzo? <laughs> I hope they look just like double bangers. It's a real thing in, among my people. Wait, what is it? Double bangers. That's when you I don't know. I see. I didn't know what that meant, and then you told me, and then I thought about it for a minute. And I was like, I don't. I don't want to. I know what it means now. I don't want to hear about it. Okay, that's fine. We we, <laughs> we can move on. 
Katie, what's the podcast? You are listening to Blocked and Reported, the only podcast. And I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. As always, you can reach out to us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple, patreon.com slash blockedandreported, arguably most important of all, and so forth. So I guess this week we're talking about the universe seems to be providing us with an endless array of cancellations to discuss, is it not? Oh my God, we have entered, it's like, it's me too for microaggressions, as we talked about last week. It, it is taking on just about the same fervor. Actually, maybe not, maybe not as much fervor because there's so much else going on. But we are seeing the same sort of trend of people, particularly people in these sort of um, upper class, highbrow, you know, uh, brain industries, um, getting pushed out of their work for, for you know, race-based crimes and sins of uh, of all sorts. If we ever start a company, we should be called brain industries. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the pace of firings and unpersonings is incredible. By the time you, the listener, hear this, Katie will have fired me and I in turn will have fired Katie. There'll be no podcast left. Yeah, we're going to be ousted by our employees uh, any day now. <sighs> so should we start with this this poor kid who does the, uh, the data analysis? Should I tell that story? Yeah, let's start with the bad tweet. So there's a guy named David Shore. He's a, a 28-year-old sort of data wonk. Uh, politics described in this Jonathan Chait article I'll link to as a social Democrat, you know, a lefty, professional lefty in D.C. On May 28th, David tweeted out, Post-MLK assassination race riots reduced Democratic vote share in surrounding counties by 2%, which was enough to tip the 1968 election to Nixon. Nonviolent protests increased Dem vote, mainly by encouraging warm elite discourse and media coverage. So David Shore here is pointing to the work of Omar Wasau, who is a respected African-American studies professor. Um, I don't know if he's a political scientist by training or something else, but this is legitimate research showing that in the 60s, Basically, nonviolent protests seem to be better politically for Democrats than violent protests. So because we're in a weird moment where a chunk of the left has decided you, you're not allowed to say violence is bad or looting is bad or rioting is bad, this straightforward presentation of political science research by a scholar who is himself uh, black, I believe mixed race, caused a small firestorm. And someone replied – a guy named – Ari Trujillo Wessler, the founder of Openfield, the Democratic canvassing app, replied, quote, This take is tone deaf, removes responsibility for depressed turnout from the 68 party, and reeks of anti-blackness. What do you make of this move we see sometimes, Katie, where like you're just – you post something and it, it is a research finding that could be interpreted in many ways. And the sort of jump to that – from that to anti-blackness sort of – gets me here. I just don't understand it. I don't understand how putting forward, you know, authentic, legitimate data about history and, and you know, making an inference about what's happening now in any way could be perceived as anti-Black. I mean, it's, that, that position just seems so colored by ideology. Um, if you care about black lives and you think, I think like many of us do, that uh, polit politics does impact black lives, particularly, you know, at the top level, um, well, then it seems like getting the data right should be more important than, you know, whatever sort of particular ideology that you are that you are personally um, aligned with. And so in this case, I just don't understand, like the complaint here to me, it just doesn't align with at all what the guy tweeted. No. I mean, this is a, a style of discourse where 
you take a very complicated question, like the, the trade-offs of violent versus nonviolent protest, these really complicated systems, because you're talking about white voters, you're talking about black voters, all these different groups. Nobody really knows what the answer is. A study like this provides evidence for one piece of the puzzle, and you just decide that one answer is unacceptable and needs to be shouted down, which is what happened here. Because Shore ended up having a brief back and forth with Trujillo Wessler. So eventually, uh, Trujillo Wessler tweeted, tagged in the CEO of Civis Analytics, David Shore's boss, and said, come get your boy. Come get your boy means like your employee is doing something wrong. I want you to do something about it. In a normal world, some random asshole tweeting at this guy's boss would not have amounted to anything, would not have caused anything bad to happen to him. In the stupid world we live in, here's what happened as per John Chate, reading directly. At least some employees and clients of Civis Analytics complain that Shore's tweet threatened their safety. The next day, Shore apologized for tweeting Omar's paper. Here's how that apology read. While I strongly admire Omar Wasau's work, it's clear that I have not been, due to both my background and words, an effective messenger of his findings about the power of nonviolent protest. I regret starting this conversation and will be much more careful moving forward. Chait's reporting suggests that this kid was told by his boss he had to issue an apology for tweeting a relevant research finding or his job would be endangered. It didn't matter. Three days later, he's fired. This 28-year-old kid who must be a talented data analyst or he would not be working for a, a esteemed firm like Civis Analytics is now out of a job because some moron on Twitter was offended by him posting research. I, I think you and I have both felt the ground shifting in disturbing ways in recent years. You maybe were ahead of me a little bit because I've always wanted to believe that like people are overreacting, conservatives are weaponizing this. This is profoundly fucked up. It's a little bit of a relief to see all this break open. Um, just in the past couple of days, I've gotten about five messages from people that said, you know, I used to read your work at The Stranger. And uh, I thought that or this is also from from uh, people that I know, friends of mine. Um, and I thought that you were a little bit crazy when you would complain about things like cancel culture and what happens on college campuses. But now I see that you were right. So it does feel a little bit of a relief, a little bit validating to be like, OK, these things are breaking open and every everybody can see what's happening. I, I really see the parallels to me, too, here. And one of the parallels here is that you have these cases you have like you have a real problem right the problem could be racism the problem could be lack of diversity in whatever industry you have these like real actual we can call it systemic systemic problems what people do is focus on the individual right so we can say so all over you hear like the problem is systemic racism okay if the problem is systemic racism then why is targeting this guy who tweeted a study written by a black man a study that like didn't he didn't do it in a disrespectful way there i don't didn't i don't even really see the microaggression in this particular case um he just you know tweeted out some like a fucking study um why focus on that so what i don't understand is how you get from we have a, a huge problem with systemic racism to the solution to that problem is to fire this, get this kid fired. I mean, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why this is sort of the the tactic that some activists are are choosing to go with, other than the fact that it's very public and performative and you get, get lots of like validation on social media. What you said is absolutely true. Like this, this is not how you change anything. The, the time spent 
searching for people's problematic tweets would be better spent doing anything else. Just better spent reading a book about like African-American history. Except white fragility. Except white fragility. <laughs> Katie, you are not dragging me down that road again. Some other time, goddammit. Um, <laughs> we have to talk about Robin Giangelo at least once in every podcast. Oh, co- contractually obligated with her publisher. I have some white fragility surrounding discussions of Robin D'Angelo. Um But it's not just that this stuff doesn't help. It's also it, – it corrodes institutions. You and I have both seen that some newsrooms have been corroded by this fear of saying something that will annoy people, something that would not annoy most Americans. Th- this data firm, part of their job is to help – like progressives win. How how can you possibly help progressives win if you're not allowed to look into questions like the complicated nature of of public opinion in light of violent versus nonviolent protests? It 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 shrinks the world of inquiry. It shrinks what you can write and what you can say. And it's just it, it was unreal watching this unfold because this is not like I think there's some cases that are a little bit ambiguous, and we discussed some of them last week. This is different. This is this is outrageous that Civis Analytics would would look at the room and decide this is the action they should take, and I hope there's huge blowback to this. And I, I was disgusted by it. I feel bad for this kid. I do have a I do have a question for you. Okay, so not this case. I think this case is pretty like pretty egregious. Um, and then you know they have the, you have the case of like Adam Rapoport that we talked about last week at um at Bon Appetit. So Adam Rappaport, for people who don't know, was the editor-in-chief of this magazine, and he stepped down after it was revealed that in 2013, his wife posted a photo on Instagram that was him in quote-unquote brownface, so he was dressed up like a Puerto Rican. Um, and we don't know when actually the photo was taken because it was like a throwback Thursday thing, but it was posted in 2013. And so this led to his losing his job. After the photo came out, the photo was sort of the catalyst, right? But then there was this, um, I don't, I wouldn't call it a flood, but there was a trickle of accounts basically claiming that, uh, Bon Appetit did have real problems with, um, you know, with how they treated their, their black employees. And so my question, like, I have such a knee jerk response to cancel culture over things in the past. Like, I don't think anybody should lose their job over a photo that was taken. Who knows when? Because at the time the photo was taken or the time the photo was posted. It clearly wasn't a violation of a social norm to take to dress like that or to post photos like that, or they wouldn't have done it. Um, and so I just I I think it's really dangerous to start penalizing people for things that weren't crimes at the times that they were that the act was committed. But if it breaks open, if that's the thing that breaks open, uh, you know, stories of actual systemic bias or discrimination or whatever, does that make it worth it? So what's your take on that, Jesse? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, it's really complicated. I, and I actually, I think a lot of the times when, when something like this happens, there's a sense of frustration building up among staffers. I think that might've been true during the times thing too. I guess it's complicated. I, I don't like the idea of anyone being collateral damage in that sense. But but you know the stories you heard about the Bon Appetit thing with this assistant making thirty five grand, being refused a raise, having to do all these chores like like sort of a maid. I think there's a lot of labor issues in journalism, and they've gotten worse as things have collapsed. And I think a lot of them are, are sort of mediated by race and class, but often in complicated ways that I think defeat easy categorization. Like I think if your your experience, if you were sort of like an upper middle class black guy who graduated Wesleyan and entered journalism would be pretty different if you were like coming out of Appalachia and you were white. Like I, people sometimes oversimplify this and they want to make it just like a hierarchy of, of who is harmed. So 
I guess I don't know the answer. I think if institutions did a better job handling this stuff, not that that's easy, this wouldn't happen. But like in the case of civis analytics, I just I'm with you. I have such a knee jerk reaction to like people being unfairly fired and that that really does ruin someone's life like the difference between not having a job and having a job especially right now is massive um i guess like the best counterpoint i can think of is, is ferguson because we mentioned this but as even sort of tanahazi coats wrote in the atlantic when they actually looked into what happened with michael brown's death it it was complicated whatever happened it wasn't as simple as like him with his hands up getting shot and and if people are mad at us about this, be mad at Tanahazi coach too, because he wrote this. That's a case where while the the initial event is shrouded in some ambiguity, the subsequent federal investigation found that the Ferguson Police Department was a complete nightmare and that they were absolutely exploiting the poor black community in Ferguson and, and just extracting fines and fees from them and engaging in all sorts of misconduct. So you know, in a situation like that, you could definitely make the case that on balance it's better it came out. But the fact is we don't know what's going on in these institutions. We don't know how many of the grievances are sort of warranted versus not. Think of what think of what other journalists have said about us and, and the supposedly awful uh, consequences of publishing artwork. So Right. That's my other concern with that is that – so the claim is made online – and then within a couple of hours, there's a piece about it um, up, up, you know, up on the internet somewhere by some legitimate magazine. And to me, that I that makes me wonder how much like fact checking and due diligence and digging the reporter actually did instead of just reporting, making the story claim has been made. Well, sure, claim has been made, but has claim been verified? Um, so I do think people should also read read these stories with some skepticism and. Uh, I, actually, I think people should be just more skeptical of everything they they, they read on the news. It, it makes me feel sort of insane to say that I feel like Donald Trump screaming about fake news. Yeah. But you know, once you start to see mistakes repeated over or error, like not just mistakes, but like misinformation just pushed through the media daily, it becomes very difficult to trust anything in the media, which is a, it's a very like a disorienting position to be in um, if you're somebody who has you know sort of historically trusted yes. institutions like this. And I think it's particularly difficult when, when the claim is not so-and-so like raped or assaulted someone, but so-and-so was disrespectful or was emotionally abusive. Right. Th there's this category of very gray area where we we should listen to people making claims, but there were a couple stories on the fringes of Me Too that Jezebel published that I just think were bullshit journalism and it doesn't mean that the, the the men they targeted did nothing wrong or weren't a little bit creepy or skeezy, but I, I sort of ended up finding out some details that made me think they did not really look into this journalistically. Yeah, and and yet people got people got fired. People got fired. People's careers were ruined. And yeah. um yeah, so I guess, you know, we're gonna always be the nerds in the room, like the liberals railing about procedural fairness, and sometimes there's something bigger lurking underfoot, and maybe you could make the case, some sort of utilitarian argument that in the long run it's good. David Shore got fired from Civis Analytics, but I just, I don't want to go down that road because that is like that you're getting in like almost sort of a cultural revolution Maoist territory to use the overwrought example everyone's using right now. Right. I think everyone's using the example because it feels so apt. You know, and another thing that like reminds me about of Me Too in the current moment is that this is really, the focus is really on, you know, white collar, upper class the most privileged industries, right? So I, this is like pure speculation, but I'm going to guess that the places that you, ex that you encounter more 
like actual racism and like you do more actual sexism and more things like assault and harassment are not actually the places where you have the most privileged sort of highbrow educated employees. Not to say it doesn't happen. It, it clearly does, but it's the, it's really more working class industries. Um, and you're not hearing about that. You're not hearing about like racism in like the, you know, like a cab stand or, or like a diner or whatever. It's all focused on, People on on in, in industries of people who already have power, and which is exactly what happened with with me too. I don't know. I think me too probably um, improved things for women somewhat in sort of these in these industries in the industry that we're in in Hollywood. Um, although I actually you could make some. I think there's also arguments that me too made things worse. Like I saw a study last year that said that managers in in like white collar fields were felt less like or felt less inclined to meet with and mentor young women because they were worried about, you know, sort of developing these relationships and then like subsequent allegations coming out of them. So in that respect, it probably hurt women. Um, but at the same time, like on net, maybe it was good for these, uh, for women in these, these positions of relative power um, compared to much of the world, but not for people who have no power, who have no money, who have nothing. Well, not that they have nothing, but just don't have this like sort of, um, I don't know, cultural, cultural power and cachet. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, it's interesting. It sort of reminds me of how, not that there are not problems with sexual abuse and harassment on college campuses, but the way that discourse went down, you would have thought they were the most dangerous places on the planet for wi women. And I think that is connected to the fact that journalists and activists and academics tend to be college educated and tend to be sending daughters to college. And it's sort of similar like in the Northwest or at least in Portland, the series of blowups over purportedly racist incidents in like sort of bougie delis and coffee shops. It seems like wherever upper middle class people go, that's where they're most concerned about rooting out racism. And my argument is just like every every day people get arrested in poor neighborhoods on bullshit pretenses and their lives are ruined because they can't make bail. And I don't want this to be a cop out because like if someone brought to me a, a terrible story of, of, of a workplace environment um, in a news outlet, I, I don't want to respond by being like sort of what abouting it and saying like there's something always worse. But but people should pay attention to like where people are choosing to focus and especially people whose focus seems to be policing Twitter feeds and trying to get people fired like uh, that can't be the center of this. And the only other thing I'd add, and, and this makes me much more sympathetic to the idea of, of genuine climate issues with regard to race in newsrooms, is my experience in my early years as a, a, a white guy journalist from a privileged background was I it gave me so many cultural advantages and financial advantages. I had one boss who was really important to my career all but tell me that part of the reason he was investing some time in me is because he saw himself in me. We'd both come from affluent white suburbs. He did not phrase it like that, but he came very close to saying it. And that's a, it's like a, so, a social psychological concept called homophily. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it's like we're, we're attracted to people who are like us and it's not evil. It's just human. But I do think if you're one of the few staffers of color in a media outlet that could be rough and and you might have trouble finding mentors and people you can vent to and i i don't want to downplay that because i've i've only a couple times in my life been like the one the one jewish person like the token jew that's a tiny tiny fraction of what it'd be like to be the only black person the only person of color one of a small group and it's, it's deeply unpleasant even the little whiff of it i got so i just i don't want to discount that and i yeah, I just don't think firing David Shore has anything to do with making Civis Analytics uh, a better, more inclusive workplace. 
Well, you're part of the problem, Jesse. You just don't get it. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, that's the end of my rant. Of, I, I do... I don't want to go in too far in the other direction. I, 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 I'm sympathetic to this. It's just hard to be sympathetic to it when the leading edge of it is people like David Shore getting fired. I think that's unjust, and no one should be in favor of that. And anyone who disagrees with me is themselves racist and evil. Do you th- or and anti-Semitic and anti-Semitic? Do you think that this is like? I'm sorry, I keep referring to the parallels with me too, but I just I'm so amused by it. You just hate women. You think women have too much power, especially in my household. There's too many women around here. Um, do you think there will be some reporting after the fact um, exonerating some of these fired people on their uh, for their uh, crimes? I guess to answer the last question first, no. Except when conservatives look into it. If you work if you, if you worked in a progressive media organization, do you want to be the person who's like, was Adam Rappaport really right? Like, there's no benefit to that, and you wouldn't get that story. No, no so no, it's not going to happen. To me, the difference is that Me Too was kicked off by like truly horrific actual allegations. This is much fuzzier, where it seems to be. A handful of like definitely offensive photos and I just think the stuff that's been uncovered is like endemic in journalism and you could probably find examples of it everywhere, especially when it comes to just like overworked, underpaid staffers and then the top tier editors sort of living a, a bit of a celebrity lifestyle. And and that's not that's not a racial issue right there. That's a labor issue. It's not it- I think it can, it can, I think it can inter, just in the sense that race and class inter, intersect. We're, this is a very intersectional podcast, but I do think, yeah. For sure. But what I'm saying is that it is like underpaid, overworked staffers is on basically every, every level of journalism. Um, and is something that, that, that also, I mean, much like police violence is also something that like does affect all, all races. I guess I'll, I'm just going to keep summoning imaginary appellations into existence to make my point, but I would just reiterate. You got I got to correct you, Jesse. It's Appalachia. Every time you say it, I get deeply offended. Appalachia. I am so out of touch that I am microaggressing my co-host. You are. You're <laughs> microaggressing your white co-host, which is difficult to do. This is the limit of privilege discourse, though, because if a white Appalachian, that was right, correct? Yes, Appalachian. you got it. If a white Appalachian, um, you know, somehow from a poor background entered a New York and started working at Vox or BuzzFeed in New York and didn't have a lot of money and didn't have the cultural capital to like really converse there, he'd have a horrible time. He'd, he'd face some bad stuff. Or she or they. Yes. Any of those, any of those pronouns. So I just think people sometimes oversimplify it and ignore class, but that I've been on that for a while now, especially during the present. As the resident white Appalachian uh, in the room, I will say it, it is extremely oppressive but why don't you why don't you people just start podcasts because that's (laughs) it's so easy you just start a podcast and people give you money do you want to move on to a talk of a a violent incident that has me shaking yes i definitely want to hear about your trauma so the poetry foundation as kyle smith puts it in a, a national review article is the is like the palace of versailles of cultural nonprofits. its endowment is fat with a quarter of a billion dollars of assets why very big (laughs) because <laughs> Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical heiress, uh, gave them a huge amount of money. Ah. So the Poetry Foundation decided to chime in on Black Lives Matter on June 3rd, which was 10 days ago in normal time, eight years ago, coronavirus time. Here is the statement in its entirety. A message to our community and contributors. The Poetry Foundation and Poetry Magazine stand in solidarity with the black community and denounce injustice and systemic racism. As an organization, we recognize that there is much work to be done, and we are committed to engaging in this work to eradicate institutional racism. We acknowledge that real change takes time and dedication, and we are committed to making this a priority. We believe in the strength and power of poetry to uplift in times of despair and to empower and amplify the voices of this time, this moment. 
that's it. Strikes you as as pretty vanilla. A uh, standard boilerplate. You could insert um, any any brand name where poetry found this it. This somehow launched an incredibly massive shitstorm in which 1,600 people affiliated with the Poetry Foundation, uh, they wrote an open letter denouncing the organization for this completely just vanilla statement of support. Here's some of the quotes from their, from their open letter. I'm going to try not to laugh when I say that. I'm not laughing at the seriousness of the subject matter, just the email. Please don't cancel me. They said the the note was an insult to the lives and families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, and the countless other victims of the racist institution of police and white supremacy. It was also an insult to the lives of your neighbors who have been targeted, brutalized, terrorized, and detained by the Chicago police. The craziest part was when they said the watery vagaries of the statement are ultimately a violence. I like that. That's very poetic. I, this is one of those ones where, like, with the David Shore thing, I can squint and understand what what his antagonist was saying. Because it's like, you know, if someone – you could imagine someone misinterpreting it. I'm lost here. Do you have any idea of what they're mad about? Uh, no. I mean, I guess the issue is that they didn't, like, pledge any direct – any action. Um, they just, like, said, we support Black Lives Matter or we support the black community or whatever. And that wasn't enough. Um, which I understand, I guess it's, you know, it does, you just release a statement sort of, um, you know, raising your flag and saying that says like, we're one of the good ones, don't cancel us, please. Or perhaps they actually do stand in solidarity with the black community, which is, I think, also probably true. Um, but that's not enough. You also have to do something behind it. I miss, I misstated the, um, the, the number was 1800, not 1600. But yeah, all that, be that as it may, just, just to call this, it's weird to me because I like imagine you actually were the family of one of the black people killed by police violence. Do you think if you the first thing I would be concerned about is the poetry right. foundation, and then you, I would be fucking watching their watching their Twitter every day between like planning my loved one's funeral um, and figuring out how I was going to get on with the rest of my life. I would be checking the fucking poetry foundation website and waiting for their statement. It's also and the the idea that this one milk toast statement among the trillion from everyone from like Doritos. Uh, yeah, Halliburton I bet. <laughs> right, right, right. Uber, Amazon, like these companies that have like actually support black labor. <laughs> have any of the like sort of military contractors that massacred Iraqi civilians yet chimed in for Black Lives <laughs> Matters? Maybe I'll check on that for the next yeah. episode. If they haven't, I need you to make a list and circulate it on Twitter. You know what? Maybe that would be the way to take down the military-industrial complex. Halliburton did not issue a statement in support of Black Lives Matter. We could uh, get them canceled. Blackwater, you're canceled. Their drones exist on a gender binary. Uh, I guess, like, I mean, so this led to two higher-ups at the Poetry Foundation resigning, which is, again, insane. And people just can never take the right lesson from this, which is you you can't respond to this stuff. And... I guess just that use of violence, which like five years ago I thought was just sort of a campus activism affect, to describe a statement of support that doesn't go as far as you like as a violence. First of all, a violence just sounds like weird stilted internet talk. But I like the context here is someone who died a horrible violent death from a cop kneeling on him for eight minutes. That's that's violence. I would argue actually let me pose this to you, Katie, because you probably have thoughts on it. You tell me, what's more violent, kneeling on someone until they die or a statement of support that doesn't go far enough? Statement of support that doesn't go far enough. F okay. Well, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I'm on the right side of history, man. This stuff is all very weird. I So my theory, especially I've said this to a couple of the people who have written in freaked out to us um, 
understandably freaked out. I think there's a storyline where Joe Biden gets elected. I don't think there's any guarantee he'll get elected. I think Trump probably has a 40% chance or better. I'm saying in the universe where Joe Biden gets elected, I sort of think that an exhausted nation just passes out on the couch for four or five months and we see like a little bit of this stuff chilling out. Are you at all sympathetic to that prediction? I would have been before the George Floyd murder and the subsequent protest. Um, and now, because so... I was not a Biden fan, um, in particular. I mean, I'll vote for, I'll vote for whoever is running against, against, uh, Donald Trump because Orange Man really is bad. Um, but here, here's, here's what I'm worried about. So my fear is that if Donald Trump wins, in addition to him continuing to stack the federal courts with conservative, uh, conservative judges and, um, to be a complete, fucking idiot uh, in the White House and to embarrass the United States on a world stage and all of the dumb shit that he's done. In addition to four more years of that, um, I'm worried that this will be his victory and his victory, you know, last time around when he won, they sort of, I think the media class in some ways really flattened the reasons for his victory. And it all came down to choose one racism or sexism. And the reason people voted for Donald Trump. The only reason was because they were race, racist or, or sexist or whatever. And any sort of class analysis was uh, was oftentimes just sort of dismissed as, you know, a, a product of privilege or white supremacy or whatever. And really that this just came down to, to bigotry. Um, and so if Donald Trump wins, I think that the people who already believe that will confirm their belief that the United States is this inextricably, you know, racist, sexist country. And then, and then all of these divisions are just going to get way, way worse. There's going to be a like bigger ramping up of these culture wars. And that's bad. I'm concerned about that. But I'm also concerned that if Joe Biden wins, he, even if he himself is not woke, uh, if he's sort of an old school, like almost like an MLK, you know, colorblind, treat people equally, um, acknowledge, you know, acknowledge, acknowledge race, but, uh, but, you know, but not sort of a racial essentialist the way a lot of these um, sort of younger activists tend to be. My fear is that because of the moment we're in now, Biden will end up appointing people to his cabinet that really are sort of, I, there's no good words for this, but these sort of critical theorists, um, the woke social justice advocates. And then some of these things that are happening now will enter the federal government. The same things that we're seeing in media and academia and and education. This is already happening. I mean, education systems around the U.S. right now have are really focusing on things like equity and inclusion. Um, and there's some downsides to that. And uh, like, for instance, they are in Seattle, they, I mean, the school systems are so fucked up right now because of COVID that who knows, even if there will be school systems in a couple months, but like in Seattle, before all this happened, um, they, this, this contingent of like, basic, like, basically like, you know, social justice activists, including the uh, superintendent, um, they decided to essentially close down the gifted program um, because the gifted program in Seattle, like gifted programs in uh, like all over the country is disproportionately white and Asian, although they don't tend to talk about Asians as much, um, but it's disproportionately white and Asian. There's way fewer black students than there are white and Asian students and Hispanic students as well. And so 
And this caused all sorts of all sorts of problems, right? And so what they decided to do was just dismantle this program. And so I did a piece on this for the stranger, and I interviewed all of these these parents, primarily black the, the black parents of these of these kids in the program, and who were affected by all of the other sort of you know systemic issues in terms of of income and things like that, and or disparities in terms of income and things like that. And they were just absolutely horrified that their students were going to be that their kids were going to be missing out from this program in the name of equity, right? And so what was what was going to happen, they feared, and I think probably would have played out um, if like the school systems hadn't all closed, is white is white upper class parents taking their kids out of these school systems and putting them in private schools while the the poorer students who were typically more likely to be minority students we're going to be stuck in these school systems where they just weren't getting the education that they needed because they have these accelerate. They're just, they're smart kids, you know, and there's lots of arguments for, uh, for reforming the, the, these gifted programs and, and for, for various reasons, but this is happening all over the country, similar things happening in, in New York and places like that. And so we're seeing this in education, uh, MAT programs, masters of teaching programs tend to be really dominated by, uh, by critical theorists. And my concern with with Biden be entering office is that these people will enter into the federal government, and I'm genuinely concerned about that. I mean, I would still I'm still going to vote for him because I don't want Donald Trump to be president. I think that's much much worse, and we have issues like climate change that need to be addressed um, that Donald Trump will you know prefers to ignore. Um, so I'll, I'll vote for Biden no matter what. But I am actually concerned about some of these this ide- ideology that we've been observing over the past few years. Entering into the federal government. Yeah, that's fair. I guess my strongest counterargument, and this is sort of maybe a much bigger discussion we should talk about some other time, especially the education stuff, which is really fraught and difficult and, and sort of replete with trade-offs. But <clears throat> I guess the, the my counterargument would be I think Joe Biden sort of understands where his bread is buttered and he won the primary by running up the score in like blacker, poorer states like South Carolina and uh, – Black or poor South Carolinians do not see the world or talk about the world the way sort of media elites do. So, and it's like, you know, it's someone like James Clyburn, who's like an important black politician, is not, you know, a critical theorist. And I will say, I used to be, I used to be skeptical of this, this idea that like we need to worry about wacky academic stuff. But there was a similar blow up in New York where some of the stuff that got into the local DOE is just insane. And in my view, actually racist because it says things like objectivity is a white supremacist concept which is just a you know it's insulting for a million reasons so yeah maybe we can discuss this further but i i just think it's tricky with biden because he's the coalition that that helped him win the primary and then traditionally once you win the primary you tack to the center for the general and and especially with some of the exhaustion of of Again, I don't, you know, I know people don't like when we use the term wokeness. I don't know what to call it because whatever you call it, they'll say you can't use that wokeness. Um, I, I could see him running a pretty like risk averse campaign. I, I think you're right about that. I mean, if George Floyd hadn't been murdered, if these protests, uh, if this movement had it started, I would not be worried about this at all. Um, but I think that he's going to need to appease, appease activists and appease the media. Um, and, or maybe he doesn't because it like, it <laughs> apparently like media, like media coverage doesn't actually matter that much when it comes to winning at least the democratic primary. I'd sort of forgotten that Joe Biden was in the, even in the race, he got so little attention. Um, but we'll see what happens. Um, you know, things can only get better or worse or stay the same. That's a really brave prediction you just made. Thank you. 
so so we're going to wrap this up. We're going to do our sort of outro music. And then what you're going to hear is a cut of an interview I did with a lefty thinker I really like named Ben Burgess. This is cut from a longer hour and a half or so interview I posted for our patrons. If you've already heard that in its entirety, uh, you won't be hearing anything new. What you will have in your feed if you're a patron is... Katie and I, God help us, dissecting J.K. Rowling's essay on trans stuff. So you can look forward to that. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, every single one of my tweets is literal violence. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you want to support a minority-owned business, donate to Blocked and Reported. Hello, Ben Burgess. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. You are uh, holding it. Hanging in there during our present apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, considering the the plague and depression and and civil unrest and and, and everything else, I'm I'm surprisingly fine. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm I'm really um yeah thankful you came on. Could you, as I told you before we started recording, I'm going to be lazy and just have you sort of introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, so I. I'm a columnist for Jacobin. Uh, I co-host a podcast called The Dead Pundit Society uh, with Adam Proctor. I do um, a regular segment on the Michael Brooks show called uh, The Debunk. And uh, related to that last point, I wrote a book called uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Great. And you're a, a philosopher by training and profession, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a uh, full-time lecturer in philosophy at uh, Georgia State University Perimeter College here in Atlanta. I mean, the easiest way to sum up your book, which I, I loved and I'll would recommend to anyone, will include a link to it, is as it says on the jacket copy: "The serious left must learn how to argue and persuade." So, could you just talk a bit about sort of the process that led you to think that was a, an important enough argument to put into book form? Yeah. Um, so I had been, um, you know, before I wrote this, uh, I'd been writing a academic monograph that, uh, is still hasn't come out yet, which is entirely my fault. You know, the process takes a long time, but, um, but, you know, because that book, which I'm sure, you know, maybe 12 people in the world will read, uh, but, you know, because it had to do with logic, uh, Doug Lane, who's a friend of mine from a long time ago and also is the editor of Zero Books, uh, which is the publisher of Give Them an Argument, uh, sort of asked if I'd be interested in writing something for them about uh, logic and left politics. And, and it took me a little while to wrap my head around what that would be. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there actually is – a need for uh, for that kind of intervention. So, uh, for example, uh, there there is a certain tendency that I think some people, you know, on on the left, right? Like, so I'm I'm a, you know, just to um, you know, just to kind of establish where I'm coming from, right? I, I'm I've I've been a member of of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, for years. I, I you know, I, I listen, uh, you know, listen to Chapo to Trap House. I have a beard and glasses. You've probably, you know, seen a hundred people who are indistinguishable <laughs> from me. Uh, right. But, um, but a lot of people who share those political sensibilities with me, I think, uh, there's a kind of worrying cultural trend, um, uh, towards rolling their eyes when they hear 
a certain kind of logic talk or especially references to to logical fallacies and and you know why you should avoid them uh which i think has to do with the fact that they're so used to hearing that stuff from um from people they they rightly dislike uh yeah yeah. so so the the classical example of that is um there's this because I think some of we have our listenership ranges from pretty online to not surprisingly unonline and and the prototypical example of this is someone will come at you and say I think some races are smarter than others and you'll right. say well screw you get out of here and they'll say well why won't you debate me don't you care about facts and logic <laughs> uh, absolutely so uh, so so that's that's very annoying um, and and there are people who think that they have a unlimited right to your your time and energy that uh, that you that everybody has to be constantly ready to drop everything to debate anything with you. In the, in the supermarket, for example. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Somebody walks up to you and, and challenges a view that you have. Like you just have to drop your groceries on the ground and stand there having a, a Socratic dialogue with them for the next hour. Brief digression, but I, the one time someone recognized me in public ever, I think it was because he was a, a Breitbart reader and they had gone after me a couple times. I'm waiting in line visiting my parents for tacos during yeah. halftime of a Celtics game. This guy recognized me and wants to debate Obama's Iran policy while I'm waiting <laughs> for my tacos. <laughs> what you were saying got me thinking before about like, I think there's sort of a flaw in the way people understand how political identities are like constructed. So in the case of a Trump voter, the assumption seems to be that there is this like kernel of, of evil or bigotry in them that existed prior. And then that turned them into a Trump voter. Cause Trump is like the bad and bigoted candidate. But I, the example I always try to use is like liberals and leftists seem to understand that, um, in Europe and the Middle East, young men can be driven to ISIS who 12 months prior were just living normal lives and horrible stuff happens to them and they're searching for meaning. And this, of course, doesn't morally excuse if they subsequently chop someone's head off. But um, this disconnect where we can understand why like, you know, a kid in the French suburbs might jet off to Syria and try to kill people, but we can't understand why someone in the US might vote for Trump, I, I think is like a pretty dangerous Thing in a way, I mean, am I overstating that? No, I don't think you're overstating it at all. Uh, I, I think that there's there's a lot of that uh, going around, and obviously, it's incredibly misguided on, on a strategic level, right? That uh, if you know, like, because if it's possible that a different pitch would would get some of these people to uh, to vote for you, then uh, I mean, well, I'll, I'll give. Just two quick examples uh, from my own uh, experience of, of dealing with these debates. Uh, one of them is the reaction in some quarters when uh, Joe Rogan sort of endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. He did it in a very Joe Roganish way. He said he'd probably vote for Bernie, um, and 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 there were a lot of people who had the reaction that um, Joe Rogan is bad. Uh, you know, because of various things he said over the years or various like horrible guests that he's not along to. Uh, and therefore by the transitivity of badness, <laughs> him endorsing Bernie and Bernie, you know, tweeting. That was, that was Aristotle, right? Who developed the transitivity of badness. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like, which, which is, 
which is nuts. And of course, some of that was, uh, you know, bad faith pot stirring by supporters of other candidates. But I, I saw a surprising number of people who I know to be, be strong Bernie supporters or, or socialists, even, you know, who, who were echoing that, that reasoning. And, and it just, I, I really like, this seems like such a simple argument to me that, um, that if, you take somebody like Rogan, who uh, has very left-wing views on some subjects that he'll express, um, including immigration, for example. He's, he's made some very good statements about that, has some very right-wing views about other subjects. Um, has He tends to agree with everything right-wing guests say. He also tends to agree with everything left-wing guests say. He's, he, yeah. just, he just seems kind of confused, right? Like, Which sounds to me like the profile of an awful lot of voters – and if you accept the premise that the purpose that like the purpose of an election strategy is to get more people to vote for you than the other guy, then then uh, you're being able to attract people who could be pulled in either direction uh, seems like a good thing. And I would also and I I had saw a very similar dynamic uh, just recently after the uh, anti lockdown protests uh, started in my home state Michigan, uh, which. You know, is um, I mean, it's hard to remember now because the you know because the roles have already reversed. But uh, but uh, back then, uh, people uh, thought that uh, you know people on the right wing thought that you know uh, restrictions on who could go where and do what you know were were fascism. Um, but in any case, like you know, I wrote an article for Jacobin about this, and you know, and 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 I said a lot of the obvious things that you'd expect me to say about the. Astroturf element of the protests and 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 the thuggish element of the protests and and the sort of baseline irresponsibility of what was being advocated, but I also said that some of what uh, was being articulated uh, by people at the protests, including people who were members of really unsavory right wing organizations, were legitimate economic grievances. And if we don't have a better response to those grievances, then we're going to see more people coming around to this position. Uh, and the, the response was like amazing. There, there were, um, hundreds of people. Well, granted 99% of cases, they only read the headline. That was like, it was clear they were just reacting to that. They didn't read the article. Uh, but, but, you know, but there were, People ranging from uh, Matt Iglesias or uh, Joshua Holland, who writes for The Nation, uh, who who were saying things ranging from uh, "I've been taken in by by astroturf," even though I talked about that in the article, <laughs> uh, to like literally like there are people you know who agree with my politics. They have rose emojis in their Twitter handles who were accusing me of advocating a red brown alliance because oh, because uh, I said. You know, even though the distinction that I was making is exactly the one you were talking about in the context of those uh, European and Middle Eastern uh, young men who join ISIS, uh, which, you know, if you think back to like the Bush years and, and you were, you know, like me, you were a good reader of your Noam Chomsky and, you know, Glenn Greenwald, uh, then you're very, you should be very familiar with this format of argument because it's the, it's essentially the same thing that, you know, that if we can say, um, obviously we don't support Al Qaeda. That's not the issue. Right. Not, not advocating an alliance with Al Qaeda. Uh, but, uh, we do see that there are, there are like real 
grievances that are being used to recruit people for Al-Qaeda. And if you want there to be less of that kind of blowback in the future, then this gives us a reason to oppose certain kinds of U.S. policies in the Middle East. Like if, if you can, if you can process all of that without seeing the person saying it as a supporter of Al-Qaeda, then I really don't see what's different about this case. One thing I wanted to ask you about that that I think you might have some insights on is there's this tendency I see this right now the 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 terms and framings people choose to use to make policy arguments and the two uh, examples that come to mind are are abortion and police reform. So setting aside whether you think pol- police actual abolition is a good policy, which I'm very skeptical of, I see a lot of people who say they are in favor of quote unquote police abolition, and then when you ask them what policies they propose, they're really, they're like me. They just want to reform it. Um, they're yeah. similar with like some of the, some of the arguments that have caught on about abortion where people say, for example, it's just a medical procedure. There's no moral consideration whatsoever, even for later term abortions. These are like, you have to say, make these statements to be in good standing in some leftist circles. To me, that's a good way of making sure you will never expand your circle. Am I, am I overreacting to that? Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, first of all, I, I, I share, uh, I share all of your skepticism about police reform. Uh, earlier today, I was interviewing, uh, Cedric Johnson, uh, for, for dead pundits, and he has, uh, written a book that's forthcoming about, uh, about police reform issues. And, um, and, and one of the things we were talking about was, well, one, um, yeah, it's all hopelessly vague. Uh, back in 2017, when uh, Democratic Socialists of America adopted what I regard as a bunch of uh, not very well thought out resolutions calling to abolish various things, uh, one thing that I noticed all the time was a lot of people use this kind of uh, rhetorical cheat code. They would say, um, I don't think that police should exist as we know it. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of things should exist as we know that. I don't think I exist how as I should know. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like that's just a way. Like, that's just an elaborate, confusing way of saying that you think that the status quo isn't great, right? Like, that's so. It's like, yeah, sure. So what, right? Like, now let's talk about what we should have instead. Uh, and and especially when when you talk like the the most, um, you know, people who. Like the the version of of we should abolish the police that uh, comes closest to having any sort of well thought out anything is like oh we should just have like informal like neighborhood patrols or something but then I think well hold on that's how Trayvon Martin died yeah um, so so like this clearly doesn't you know certainly solve all the problems you want to solve uh, I I think that you know I think dramatically scaling back policing that uh, you know there are lots of things that. Uh, police are called in for now that would in a, in a better society be handled by social workers, for example. Uh, I think that's certainly true. I think that, you know, we could redirect resources spent on bloated and militarized police departments on, um, on social programs that might address some of the underlying causes of, um, of a lot of crime. Right. And to be clear, I'm not saying that there's any amount of that that would, um, that would result in no crime, uh, there's, I, I'm, I'm quite sure that in an advanced socialist society that had long since abolished poverty, uh, there would still be domestic violence, there would still be rape, and there would still have to be some sort of policing and court system to deal with these things. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, and, and, and I think it's, it's a very, 
Uh, there's a kind of self-defeating taboo against trying to get people to be less vague about these things that, uh, uh, that, I mean, certainly I've seen, you know, in like even the sort of very mild and occasional comments I've made along these lines lately, I've gotten a lot of pushback, like, oh, wow, there's this horrible crisis going on. You know, this is, this is not the time to critique, you know, radical slogans. It's like, okay, right? I mean, like, <laughs> like, so like while people are paying attention to an, uh, to an issue, we shouldn't like try to like refine our message about it. That seems weird. I call that the, I call that the, the during pride month move. Like, <laughs> You you said that during Pride. It's like as though if I had said something one day later or one day before this particular month, you would have then accepted the argument. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, people like that's their, uh, yeah, like uh, yeah, they're 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 just certain arguments you shouldn't make, you know, during entire months of the year. That's that's even better. Uh, but yeah, and in the abortion case too, like in both cases, right? I, I think it's a shame because I think on both of these, I think the the core left position. Uh, is 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 a good one that that can be blood, you know backed up by extremely plausible arguments uh, that uh, you know like that certainly uh, you know rolling back you know militarized policing redirecting a lot of police resources elsewhere. I mean, I think that the uh, I, I I think there's a very good case for that. And on abortion, which um, you know, which is really you know my my wheelhouse, right? Because I, I mean, I've I've spent so many years at this point. Um, you know, teaching uh, ethics classes where where we'll read you know um, the sort of classic philosophy papers about this. Um, like you don't, I think I think a lot of people maybe think they have to take this kind of like there's nothing to argue about, shut up about it position in order to demonstrate their um, their level of commitment. Uh, and that's really a shame, right? Because that means that you just have nothing to say by somebody to somebody who doesn't find that compelling. Uh, which really, like, if you look at actually, well, I mean, you've obviously read this because I got the link from you. You posted it to Twitter the other day, uh, but I was just reading a old uh, Matt Brunig uh, blog post about uh, deference, right? Oh yeah, the idea that we should defer to uh, to members of groups who are most directly. Uh, impacted by something for, you know, for finding out what to think about it, right? We should, we should listen, uh, to, to the oppressed. And one of the things he points out in that is that, like, on the issue of abortion rights, uh, there are, there is a, you know, majority support among women, uh, for, for, um, for a pro-choice position, but it's not anything like as overwhelming as you might assume. No. Like, it's, there, there are, there is, you know, well over 40%, whatever it was, you know, of, of women who, who identify, uh, as pro-life. And so if you say there's nothing to discuss here, or everybody should just get it. Uh, there's no, there are no moral considerations at all that I should have any kind of answer to that might lead somebody to the other position. Then you're just permanently foreclosing any chance of, of peeling off any of that, even 40% of women. And well, what's particularly frustrating about that is it it ends up caricaturing people in their own morality. Like I've I've seen this in left of center spaces where, first of all, they they endlessly overestimate the male female difference on belief in abortion, which is not that big. Like men, I think men are slightly more um, anti choice, but it's not big. And then mm-hmm. you know, so there's millions of conservative women in the country, and, and maybe some liberals like uh, Liz Brunig types who 
are against most forms of abortion. And then you build this story where it's like a false consciousness thing where, oh, well, the patriarchy got to them. They can't actually hold this belief in some deep moral sense the way we hold our beliefs. Those people over there, their moral beliefs are different. And that that drives me crazy, both because it's a little bit demeaning and condescending, but also if you ever want to convince people of anything, that's the worst way to do it. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, which which really should be obvious, right? Because like, if if you have experienced this move from other directions, uh, like, you know, oh, you know, if you don't believe my deranged right-wing conspiracy theory, then you're just one of the sheeple, right? Like, how compelling did you find that? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, nobody, you know, like, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, that's a good way to get people to, uh, to, to roll their eyes at you. Uh, so, you know, even if you think it's true, right, you shouldn't lead with that. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and it's, it's so, um, you know, and it's always so selective, right? You know, because like, okay, if there is substantial difference between within a group about what to think about some issue that affects the group, then if you're going to take this kind of identitarian position that like there is a group X position on this, then you're going to have to say that the other, um, that like the substantial chunk of the group that disagrees is just diluted or something. And, but then like, this goes back to Matt Brunig's point from that old argument that he made about this, that, um, that in order to figure out which group is just being diluted, that you need some kind of independent argument for your position. And at that point you might as well, you know, you might as well just do that. Right. Like there's, so like there's a very recent example of this that, that I've, I've encountered um, from literally a week ago. Uh, which is that um, New York City uh, DSA was going to co-sponsor a lecture online, of course, you know, because of COVID, uh, by uh, Adolf Reed, uh, who's a black Marxist academic. Uh, and it was um, – and the event ended up being canceled after they pulled their endorsement. Uh, and, and, and it was being, you know, framed as uh, – oh, Adolf Reed is is a so-called, you know, class reductionist, you know, so it's it's like racially insensitive to hear from him uh during uh this this nationwide unrest that's, you know, to a large extent about racism. Uh but all, all like quite apart from the fact that I think that critique is just wrong, right? You know, like and we yeah. can get into that, but like even if it wasn't like you're like the fact that this organization, you know, and, and I, I used to live in New Jersey. I've, I've, I've met a lot of, I've met a lot of New York DSA people and I don't, I don't think I'm going to shock anybody when I say most of them are white. Um, that like this mostly white organization is making this decision on the grounds that they're like listening to people of color. But like, first of all, nobody took a poll. Right. right. Like, you know, we don't even know if this is the majority of position of, of people of color within DSA, much less the larger world. Uh, and, and also given that the person being canceled in this case is, is also a, a person of color, you know, dead man, an extremely left wing one. Uh, like it's just self evident from that, that there is a difference of opinion about this. Which like and like really like just explaining that like seems like once you get to the point where you're actually like explaining why it's a problem to see this as just the people of color position that Reed is wrong, 
um, think, well, hold on. Like, do you think there's like a black people hive mind, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that all, all black people have, you know, uh, have, have the same opinion about these like incredibly complicated and messy intra left debates. I was trying to figure out how to, how to tie your work into some of the stuff going on, uh, now. And, and you had a tweet earlier today that, that did my job for me. So I'm just going to read it to you yep. and then ask you about it. Tying the struggle against police violence to a broader class perspective while acknowledging the obvious fact that America's apartheid history makes the distribution of poverty wildly unequal doesn't abandon anti-racism. It's a smarter and more complete anti-racist perspective. I've had trouble. I've been scared to even raise this, despite the fact that I don't really care about people yelling at me on Twitter. Um, the fact is that a subset of the issues with the criminal justice system do come down fairly straightforwardly to class. Even something like whether whether you have to resort to a public defender, heroes that some of them are, versus being able to hire private counsel. Those issues are all, of course, correlated with race, but there are many situations where simply having money, regardless of your race, will get you out of situations uh, that would have otherwise ensnared you. What, how how do we talk about this without uh, ruffling feathers? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know that there's a way to talk about it without ruffling any feathers at all, but... You can ruffle three feathers. Okay, yeah. In terms of trying to keep it to three or fewer feathers, uh, I, I think that you know, yeah, this is something I've been wrestling with a lot in the last two weeks, uh, cause I think this is a really important point to make, but there are obviously more and less tone deaf ways to make it. Um, and, and this actually also gets back to the, uh, Adolf Reed cancellation, which I just mentioned, because Reed's talk wasn't about the police violence issue. Uh, it was about, uh, racial disproportionality in, in COVID deaths, but, uh, the, point I think is the same in both cases. So um, that the reason, you know, like uh, what Reed was, was objecting to is that there's a way that people talk about race, racial disproportionality and COVID deaths that sort of draws this straight line from racism to disproportionate deaths in a way that's a little fuzzy about the causation and uh, and what he thinks is more useful is to focus on kind of the middle link in that chain. So in other words, that America's racial history uh, means for reasons I'm sure nobody who listens to this needs me to rehearse, uh, that uh, black people are vastly more likely to, uh, to be impoverished than white people. Uh, that, you know, it, it's, you know, that it's obviously the case um I mean, really, uh, I mean, I'm thinking here back to that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates article a few years ago in The Atlantic about reparations, where one of the things I really admired about it, you know, even if I have a slightly different perspective on, on the ultimate issue that he does, is that, uh, you know, instead of going all the way back to slavery or even Jim Crow, right, he just talked about redlining, right, which is which is yeah. kind of en- enough to to make the case for for how uh, for how racially discriminatory policies. Uh, have, have, you know, contributed to, to this, uh, this wealth gap. So, uh, so given all of that, right? Like, because of course, um, you know, race as no leftist should need to be reminded is silly made up bullshit, right? There's no such, you know, there's no such thing as race. There's skin color, right? And, um, and there are, you know, clusters of common ancestry that can sometimes be relevant to certain kinds of diseases. Uh, but, uh, but this, this idea that there's this like really meaningful natural genetic division of human beings into races is mostly nonsense. 
So it's, it's not like there's some, you know, genetic reason that, you know, black people are dying from COVID at higher rates than white people. It's, it's because, uh, the main way, if you want to talk about systemic racism, well, the main way that that operates historically, um, is, you know, of course, there used to be all of this, you know, uh, de jour, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, extremely recently. Uh, but the effect of all of that, uh, is to have this wildly unequal distribution of poverty. And the bottom line fact is that poor people die of COVID more than, uh, more than middle class and rich people for obvious reasons, right? You know, uh, more likely to be, you know, so-called essential workers, less likely to have adequate medical care, et cetera, et cetera. And so Reed's point is if we're going to like really use this to call attention to this issue, to try to do something about the problem that's causing all this, what we should really be front loading is the poverty. And I think, I think a broadly similar point applies to policing, even though there are some wrinkles there that of, of course, part of the reason, especially with police shootings, uh, that for the disproportionality, which is wild, right? I think the uh, Washington Post has been, um, like for the last few years, they, they've been trying their best to uh, keep uh, updated figures on uh, the, the police killing statistics. And, uh, you know, black people are twice as likely, uh, more than twice as likely, I believe, to uh, to be killed by police than, than white people. And part of that is undoubtedly about uh, conscious or unconscious uh, bias that who is perceived as threatening in a tense situation can obviously um, make a huge difference there. But I don't think that's most of it. I think most of it is the same thing Reed is describing with COVID deaths that uh, due to this apartheid history of race in America, um, black people are vastly more likely to be in poverty than white people. And in general, Everything we're objecting to when we talk about aggressive, militarized policing is tends to be a problem in poor neighborhoods. And, and so uh, I think most of the difference, again, it, it's, it doesn't mean that it doesn't originate in, in, in racism. It does, but that's two links back in the chain. The, uh, uh, most of the difference is about the unequal racial distribution of poverty. Like if we, if we somehow magically eliminated uh, all police bias tomorrow, which obviously I don't think there's a way to do, right? I'm, I'm very pessimistic about, you know, having more and better HR trainings or whatever uh, as, as a strategy for dealing with this. But even if that did somehow happen, uh, there would still be a massive racial disproportionality in police killings because there's a, va- there's a massive racial disproportionality in, in poverty, which is actually – I think a really important thing to, to recognize for, for a couple of reasons, right? It, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring the racial dimension. I mean, there's obviously a huge racial dimension to the problem, but it's important because if you actually want to do something about police violence, if you want to roll back this kind of, you know, bloated funded and militarized model of policing, uh, redirect resources elsewhere, uh, then as with winning elections, you want to assemble the broadest possible coalition behind you to, to do that. I mean, that that's kind of, uh, you know, strategy 101, right? You're more likely to get your way if you have the uh, the support uh, of, of the biggest possible uh, majority. And uh, right now, a lot of the ways this is framed as an exclusively racial issue um, sends the worst possible message about this to – 
to white people, including poor white people, which is, hey, don't worry about this, right? This yeah. isn't a problem you're going to have. This only affects other people. What we're asking you to do is to altruistically um, altruistically act on behalf of the other people, which I tend to cynically think is probably a less of a winning message than this is something you should care about because it's in your own interests. Right. Yeah. And no, I mean, I, I, of course, am sympathetic to that. I also think it's just, um, especially at this historical moment, such an obvious missed opportunity because vast swaths of white America – um, I mean, this is a point, he's obviously not a popular name, but like Charles Murray argument is like the, the sort of types of what a conservative would call cultural pathology or whatever mm-hmm. that, that have often been associated with low income black neighborhoods are now spread like things like the opioid epidemic and deindustrialization. You have white towns that are really struggling and where the same problems are emerging. And it's probably in, in a, dark, morbid way, it's an opportunity where there are probably more white people than ever who understand what it means to have, you know, a a misdemeanor turn your life upside down or to have a police throw a flashbang into a suspected drug house and kill a baby. I mean, which is stuff that that happens not as much, but in white America, too. And it seems like a missed opportunity to get people on board. Also, especially given the fact that there's like broad bipartisan consensus on certain types of police reform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no question. Um, and, and again, like that, it's certainly true, uh, that, um, that white people are less likely to, uh, to read about, um, you know, to read about the police killing of a white person and think, oh, that might happen, you know, to me. Um, but that's something that, you know, like we shouldn't be trying to reinforce that, right? We should be trying, like, if we care, if we care about rolling back militarized policing, uh, we, we should be, we should be trying to, to undermine that issue and, and, and see that as, you know, to, to frame it as being as many people's, you know, as being a problem for a much wider swathe of people, because that's going to help get, you know, get a wider swathe of people on board that like we, we want to, uh, and, and I think if, if we, I think the more we, we talk about it in what it's actually the most accurate way, which, which is to say that, uh, that this is, uh, this goes along with, with poverty. I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, Charles Murray is, is, is right about, um, you know, is, is, is right about the spread of some of these things. I think he's wrong about the causation. Sure. Uh, you know, like that, I mean, both, he's both wrong about the causation in his, like, bell curve you know it's 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 all you know it's all I, I think i'm more saying like there's a lot of conservatives who understand that that when stuff goes south in a community this is what happens yeah like not only right not only the the iq skull measuring version but also um but also the the culturalist conservative take on this i think is is you know is wrong about the causation because because the um the cultural effects uh i think are you know, it's more true to say they're downstream from from the economics than uh, than the other way around. Um, you know, I, I think I don't know. Maybe maybe that goes uh, goes without saying here, but uh, but I do. But the fact that these are much broader problems is is just is just clearly uh, is just clearly true, right? Like the the way um, I mean, certainly the opioid epidemic has made um, more white people and even white politicians amenable to reformist arguments about, you know, policing and the war on drugs. But like, basically for the most part, the war on drugs has been fought the way it's always been fought. And, and so of course that means that more, 
Um, you know, white people in places like Youngstown, Ohio are being caught up in those tactics. I guess all I can say, Ben, is you make a strong case, comrade. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse.